the Lord's covenant with Abram. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliza of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for four hundred years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Great, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Nathan. I want to work, uh, give you another warm welcome if you're here as a visitor. Please do keep your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 15. We're going to make a lot of reference to that chapter during the next few minutes. Uh, before we do that, why don't we pray and ask for God's help? Father God, thank you for this chance to come under the sound of your word. Lord, please help us understand what you would have us uh, hear and understand. Lord, please be at work in our hearts, Lord, to be responsive to what you would have say to us. Uh, Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I wonder how long you'd be willing to wait for something. Wait for something you really, really wanted. Any film fans in the room? Any Star Wars fans in the room? Oh, good. A few Star Wars fans. Good. Up at the top. Caleb, good. Now, the last Star Wars film that came out, uh, there were some people willing to wait. Uh, Out in Los Angeles in a theater out in Hollywood, some fans were willing to wait 12 days outside the theater in order to get some tickets for the latest Star Wars film. 12 days waiting in the queue, willing to wait for Star Wars. Any food lovers? Restauranteers, yes. 
Love the master chef, love their fine dining. Well, a restaurant in New York called uh, Damon Barrell's, a famous restaurant in New York. If you want to get a, a reservation for that, well, you're going to have to wait 10 years. <laughs> wait a long time, right? 10 years to get a, rever- a reservation at Damon Burrell's restaurant in New York. Any sports fans in the room? Any sports fans? Well, let me get some pictures of us. Oh, there's Star Wars. There's Damon Burrell's restaurant. Any Liverpool fans, to be precise? What a week it was for Liverpool. Yes, Thelma. What a week. Now, Liverpool, the waiting list for a season ticket at Liverpool is the longest in the Premier League. You're going to be waiting 20 years. 20 years after you sign up in order to receive your season ticket for Liverpool FC. And what about any green-fingered members of the church? Anyone love a green finger? Good. Out in the garden today? A beautiful day for it. How long? If you lived in the borough of Camden in London and you wanted an allotment in that borough, how long do you think you'd have to wait? (laughs) 40 years. 40 years of waiting in order to get one of the 200 allotments in that borough. A long time to wait for these things. But would we be willing? Would we be willing to wait on what was coming. Now we're continuing our series in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 15, uh, and we're looking and journeying through the life of Abraham. Uh, and as we jump into chapter 15 this morning, we find Abraham waiting. Waiting, he's been waiting a long time. But it'd be fair to say he isn't necessarily waiting patiently for what's to come. Abraham has a bit of a, a gripe with a promise that's been made to him. So that's what we're going to dive in. Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, Abraham's gripe. Read with me in verse 1 of chapter 15. It begins with the phrase, after this. Now, straight away, that should make us ask, ask a question. After what? What on earth is the author of, Abraham, of, of Genesis talking about when he says, after this? Well, it points us back to what's just happened in chapter 14. Remember last week, Neil took us through a sermon in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham goes on a rescue mission to rescue his nephew Lot. Uh, When he comes back in victory, he refuses to take the spoils from the king of Sodom. And instead, he pays tribute to this guy called Melchizedek. And that shows himself to be faithful to God, the promises of God. A great victory, a great triumph in the life of Abraham. And in the light of chapter 14, that's where chapter 15 comes into focus. So again, read with me in verse 1. After this, what happened in chapter 14, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield your very great reward. Now this phrase, the word of the Lord, is an important phrase in the Old Testament. It comes up time and time again, and particularly when it's uh, mentioned around the prophets. The prophets of the Old Testament, this kind of phrase of the word of the Lord came to them, would be referenced when a prophet was about to receive a revelation from God in the Old Testament. And so here, Abraham receives a revelation from God in the form of a vision. He sees something. And this vision reveals to Abraham the word of God. God's word is revealed to Abraham. So what does this word reveal? 
Well, two things, two pictures, two images to Abraham. One, a shield. The Lord says, I am your shield. I am your protection. I am your protection, Abraham. And the second picture, I am your very great reward. Now, on one hand, this could mean that God is promising to Abraham that he is going to give him a great reward. But on the other hand, it could also be read as God himself. You read it. I am your shield, your great, your very great reward. God himself is promising himself to Abraham. God is the reward that he is offering to Abraham. An offering of communion, of fellowship, of relationship with God. I am offering myself to you as a great reward. Now, if we stop here for a moment before we carry on any further, what an amazing truth that is. As we start in Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, what an amazing thing that for both Abraham and for us, God reveals himself to us through his word. But more than that, he doesn't just reveal himself through his word, he offers himself to the reader. What an amazing thing that is, that God would offer and reveal himself to us. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God is like, if you want to get to know him personally, what do you do? Go to his word, where he's revealed to us, where he offers himself to us. What an amazing thing that is for Abraham and for us today as we come, as now we are in God's word, being revealed to us, being offered to us. But as we carry on, we jump into verse two and three and we come up with the problem abraham's gripe against god let me read it but abraham said sovereign lord what can you give me since i remain childless and the one who will inherit my state is eliezer of damascus and abram said you have given me no children so a servant in my household will be my heir Now, in our journey so far with Abraham, going back to Genesis chapter 12, God has made him some amazing promises. Back in chapter 12, verse 2, God has told Abraham that he would become a great nation. Remember that in chapter 12. And later on in chapter 12, God reminds Abraham that this offspring that would come from Abraham will inherit the land that Abraham was traveling through at the time. Now, for these two amazing promises... To become a reality in Abraham's life, two things need to happen. Firstly, Abraham needs a child. If he's to become a great nation, he needs, at the very first instance, a child to enable that to happen. And what else does he need? He needs a land. If that nation is going to inherit a land, well, he needs a land to inherit. But this is precisely the problem that Abraham is faced with. God has made him some amazing promises of a great nation, a child, a land that he will inherit. But Abraham, in the situation he's in, still hasn't experienced those promises. He's had the promises given to him, but he hasn't felt them, touched them, grasped them, experienced them in his life. And it's at least eight or nine years since God made those initial promises back in Genesis chapter 12. The promise of a child to Abraham. And still no baby. Nine years he's had been waiting and still nothing tangible for Abraham 
to see. The only thing that is happening is that Abraham and his wife are getting older. And it seems every day, every moment, every second, more and more implausible, more and more unlikely to Abraham that God will actually deliver on the promises that he gave him back in Genesis 12. And it seems as if Abraham is beginning to give up hope. You notice the phrase there, since I remain childless. You notice that in the passage. That could be translated, since I will die childless. It's almost as if Abraham's, this is my lot. I'm going to die without any children. There's no hope. This is the situation I am in. What God has promised hasn't come to pass, and Abraham fears it will never come to pass. And so much so that Abraham begins to make contingency plans. You notice that in the passage. He talks about uh, Eliezer of Damascus being the one who will inherit his estate. He talks about a servant in my household being his. uh, He's beginning to make contingency plans if God doesn't keep the promise of his word. These are the words of a man who has, has a gripe against God. He simply can't see how on earth God is going to fulfill his promises. But as we carry on in the passage, Abraham's gripe quickly makes way for God's grace. As we journey into 4 through 6. Abraham's response to God, the promises that God has given him, doubts and questions. But how does God respond to Abraham's doubts and questions? Rebuke? Judgment? No. Amazing grace. God's response to Abraham's doubt is to show him grace. The sovereign Lord, that's how Abraham describes him. The sovereign Lord, the Lord of all creation, comes near to Abraham. God doesn't remove himself. God doesn't give Abraham the cold shoulder. He comes increasingly close to a man who is in trouble. Again, look at some of the detail in the passage. Verse 1. Don't be afraid, Abraham. Again, God conversing with Abraham. He calls Abraham by, by name. Imagine that. The God of the universe, the creator God, comes and speaks to an individual by name. Amazing grace. Tenderly. Calming his fears. And then God comes even closer to Abraham. Again, we've already read it in verse 1. It says, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. But then in verse 4, that phrase, the word of the Lord is used again. But this time, it's not a vision that the word of the Lord comes in. But in verse 5, we read, it's a personal thing. He, he A personal encounter with God comes and took Abraham outside. Again, increasingly closer in his relation with God. At first a vision revealing himself. Now a personal encounter with Abraham. And it's as though God leads Abraham outside by the hand. He takes him out from beneath the canopy of his tent to beneath the canopy of the stars. And he speaks to him personally. And as he speaks, he affirms the promises that he has made. Look in verses uh, 4 and 5. It says the phrase, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. A certainty from God. You're making contingency plans, Abraham. You're doubting that these promises will be fulfilled. But I assure you, 
this will happen. And verse 5, so shall your offspring be. God reaffirming the promises he made. All in a demonstration of God's amazing grace to Abraham. God revealing himself and speaking to a man as he struggles with his doubt. Giving assurance of his great and precious promises. Now again, what an encouragement that is. What an encouragement that is for us this morning. To know that we can come to God. He has revealed himself to us. He offers himself to us and we can come to him. Come with our doubts. Come with our fears. Come with our worries. Come with our questions. Come with our pain. Come with our sorrow. But come. Come as we are to God as Abraham did. And how does he respond? Does he clobber you? Does he judge you? Does he rebuke you? Does he tell you off? No, he responds every single time with grace. The one who comes to God and says, I want to trust you, God. I need to trust you, God, but I don't see how I can trust you, God. Help me. The one who comes with that spirit, God's response will be grace. Every time. What an amazing encouragement that is for us. So God responds to Abraham with amazing grace. But how does Abraham then respond in turn to God's grace? Well, that brings us to verse 6 of the passage. And now this is one of the most important verses in the passage. And never mind the passage, I reckon the whole Bible. John 3.16, we know John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but receive eternal life. This is the John 3.16 of the Old Testament. right? This is your go-to verse in the Old Testament. Such an important, critical, crucial verse. Verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This becomes the entire message of the Bible from this point on. This becomes the entire way of salvation from this point on in the whole scripture. Belief or faith, in other words, in the promises of God, and that alone, belief and faith in the promises of God results in righteousness. Belief and faith in the promises of God results in righteousness. Now let me unpack that a little bit. Because the passage uses a mixed metaphor. Two uh, ideas from the world around us. One from the world of the courtroom, a law term. And one from the world of banking. Here we have it. Credited and righteousness. One from the courtroom and one from the world of banking. Let's start with righteousness. The word, uh, the word from the courtroom. Now, righteousness means justness or uprightness, uh, conforming to the claims of a higher authority. So in this case, the higher authority is God, God himself. He is the highest authority. So in that must mean righteousness means conforming or obeying all that God commands. That's what it means to be righteous. The one who conforms to God's demands. The one who obeys God's commands. That is the one who is righteous. It's like 
a God-like righteousness or a, a righteousness that comes from God. So here's the metaphor before God in his courtroom as guilty sinners, not having obeyed God's commands, not being righteous ourselves. We deserve punishment for that. And the only thing that will acquit us is perfect righteousness. That's the metaphor being played out here. We don't have this righteousness, but we need this righteousness to be right before God. So there we have righteousness. The second term, credited. Now a word from the banking world. We know all should know what it means to credit something to someone's account. Uh, to add or to deposit something. So here, God credits, adds, deposits righteousness to Abraham. So you see what verse 6 means? The righteousness of God, or in other words, a God-like righteousness, a perfect righteousness, is credited to Abraham by faith. Let me say that again. A God-like righteousness is credited to Abraham by faith. When Abraham believed God and his promises, God looked at Abraham and considered him righteous. It's as if faith is the wire transfer moving righteousness from God's account into Abraham's. He didn't have it in it by himself, but having faith in God's promises transfers what he didn't have, righteousness, so that he now has it, a perfect righteousness. So you see, by faith, Abraham looked to God's promises. The promise that he would have a son. The promise that through that son, he would become a great nation. The promise that through that nation would come one in Genesis chapter 12 verse 3, by whom all the peoples on the earth would be blessed. By faith, Abraham looked to these gospel promises of one to come, the one being Jesus, and claimed that righteousness for himself. And this is the good news of the Christian faith, isn't it? That God considers righteous the one who has perfectly kept all that God's commands. God considers righteous all those who believe in Jesus. Not by works. Not by anything we can offer. We can't offer anything to claim that righteousness for ourselves. But simply by trusting and believing in the promises of God. The promises of future saviour in Jesus Christ. That's what credits righteousness to Abraham's account and to our own. Now, the question as we conclude that section of the passage is, do I believe? Abraham here believes he has faith in God's promises and it was credited to him as righteousness. The question I must ask myself and each one of us here this morning is what about us? Do you, do I believe the promises of God? The promises of God found in the person of Jesus Christ. Do I? Will I believe? And I guess the offer would be, please look into this. If you're here this morning and you don't yet believe, I urge you, I ask you, take this opportunity and be in church this morning to investigate the claims of Jesus, who he was, what he did, his life, death and resurrection. Ask the person who brought you here this morning to tell you a little bit more. 
Come and chat to me after the service or one of the pastors of the church or a friend who you trust, who knows Jesus about what they believe and why. Because this matters. Investigate the person of Christ for yourself. Ask the question, do I believe? Is he credible? Can he be trusted? And if you do, the promise of verse 6, the accreditation of righteousness can be yours. So there we have Abraham's gripe in verses 1 to 3, God's grace in verses 4 to 6. But the focus switches back to Abraham as we move on to verses 7 to 9, Abraham's concern. Now, we know from looking at Abraham's life up to this point, and even within the passage itself, that Abraham is a man of faith. It's just been declared to him in verse 6. He believed in God's promises. But within that genuine faith of Abraham, it's mingled and it will continue to be mingled with doubt and unbelief. A mixture of belief and unbelief in the life of Abraham. Right after God declares him righteous in verse 6, God affirms another promise to Abraham in verse 7. The promise of land, we read it there. God also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But in verse 8, Abraham questions God's promise. (laughs) He's back at it again. How can I know, is this question. Okay, thank you God for the promise of land, but how can I know? Now, isn't it just like us? As we look at Abraham and response again to God, Here's a man just like us. He's not made of anything different than you and me. The same stuff makes up Abraham. One minute, he's high as a kite. The next, he's back to where he started. One step forward, two steps back. Up and down, belief, unbelief. A roller coaster ride of the Christian life for Abraham. Rings a bell. Rings a bell for me. But once again, how does God respond to this roller coaster approach of Abraham? Grace. Abraham asked the question, how can I know your promise will come true? And God, in the rest of the passage, says, let me help you. Let me help you to know for sure that I will deliver on my promises. And here's what it moves on to in verse 9 through 11. Let me read this section to us. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. Now, what on earth is going on here? Random, right? A bit gruesome. What's Abraham doing? What does this mean? Well, let me help us. Uh, Abraham seems to know what's going on though we might not but Abraham seems to know what's going on you read the passage God doesn't really give him any instructions he just says bring me this and this and this and Abraham just kind of cracks on and starts cutting them up and arranging them he seems to know right away what to do with God's message and you see this is something that everyone in that day and time would have understood quite clearly but we don't in our day and time so as I say let me help you get what's going on Picture on the screen. Handsome couple. Oh, 
rings a bell just over there. Uh, my and Lisa's wedding day, I did get her permission, I promise, to show that picture. Uh, our wedding day a few years ago. Um, and on that wedding day, and if you've ever been to a wedding or been married yourself, you'll know that you make some promises to each other. Some amazing promises before God's people and before God himself to honor and to stand by each other till death do us part. Now, in the middle of those promises, what if one or both of us turned to each other, myself and Lisa, and said, great, thanks for the promises, but how can I know, right? How can I know that you will deliver Nathan on your promise? Now, in this situation, you'll see in front of you, in a wedding ceremony context, you don't just say, I promise I will. What do you do? What's Lisa holding? What's in front of her? She's got a pen in front of her. She does. She's signing, right? She's signing the wedding license. She's signing almost a contract, an agreement that I just won't say it. I will sign it. And in our context, in our culture, we're in a very written culture. And you think of contracts not just in a wedding context, but in a work context. How do I know you'll deliver? You sign. You sign a contract. And if I break that contract, there'll be consequences. That's our culture. If it was in our culture and God had been making a promises to Abraham, he'd probably get him to write a contract out. But that wasn't Abraham's culture. Abraham didn't live in a written culture. He lived in an oral storytelling culture, very different to our day and age. And so when they made a contract, and when the question was asked, okay, thank you for making the contract, thank you for making these promises, but how can I know, how can I know you will keep your promise? What they would do, rather than sign the dotted line, they would act out the consequences of unfaithfulness to the promise. That's what they would do, a very visual thing. So in our passage, by taking the animal, by killing it, by cutting it in half, and by walking between the bodies, here's what you were saying. If I break my promise, may the consequences to me be what has happened to this animal. May what has happened to this animal happen to me if I break my word. Right? Pretty powerful, right? A very visual thing, a very tight bonds be made there and not just one person would do it both parties both parties would stand by side stand by side walk through the animals and say for both of us if i if you break your word may what has happened to this animal happen to me so there's a bit of context as to what's going on here in the passage abraham knew it's the sign of a contract between god or so he thinks because what happens, even though, even though he thought he knew it was about to happen, things play out very, very differently than Abraham might have expected. As we move on, not just to Abraham's concern, but finally to God's covenant in verses 12 to 21. We read in verse 21 that the scene changes. Abraham falls asleep. A supernatural sleep, and he's surrounded by darkness. And out of this darkness, God again speaks to Abraham. And out of the darkness, God speaks dark things. God makes promises, prophecies about Abraham, about Abraham's descendants, and about the nations of the world. We read that in verses 13 through 16. To Abraham, the prophecy is that he will be spurred, And live to an old age in peace. We read that in verse 15. 
to Abraham's descendants, the prophecy is that they will be slaves in a foreign land, in verse 13. But hope in that they will return to the land that Abraham is currently in, in verse 16. And finally, the prophecy to the nations is that they will be judged for their sins, for their disobedience and rebellion against God. They will be judged and they will be removed from the land that they currently possess. Prophecies made by God to Abraham. And then we reach verse 17. The climax. The climax of the passage as something quite incredible happens. Let me read it to us. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now again, this is imagery, this is picture language. Smoke and fire throughout the Bible are associated time and again with God and his presence. Again, a few examples of that in Hebrews chapter 12, 29. It describes God as a consuming fire. A little bit later in the Old Testament, Exodus uh, chapter 13, as God's people are wandering through the desert, God shows up and has his presence with him. How? Well, we read it in verse 21. By the day, uh, by day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud or smoke to guide them on their way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. So again, smoke, fire represents God in his presence. So here, as the, as the, the smoke and the fire appear in the scene, what do we have? An appearance of God. God comes down. But that's not the incredible thing. The fact that God appears is great, but it's not the most important thing. The most important thing I want you to notice is what God does. Read it. A smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. God passes between the pieces. Now, why is this so incredible? Why am I so worked up about this small detail, seemingly small detail in this passage? Well, let me present you with two problems. When we, when we come and think about trusting God, I think there's always two problems that we have to face. One we've already kind of touched on. Problem number one, how can I know about you when talking to God? How can I know about you, God? How can I know that you, God, will keep your promises? How, do, how can I know, God, that you would deliver upon what you have said, that you will come through, that you will pull through? How can I know about you? Well, you see, when God appears and passes between the pieces, you see what he's saying? He's saying to Abraham, if I don't keep my promises, Abraham, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. God saying that, may I be taken, may I be cut up, may I be broken, may I be ripped to pieces, may I be killed if I don't keep my word to you, Abraham. God walked through the pieces. But that's not all. Again, look at the detail. This is amazing, but it's not all. How do I know about you? 
God, that you'll keep your promises. Abraham might have been saying, great, okay. God, you walk through the pieces. I know I can trust your promises because you say, if you don't, uh, if you break your word, then may these things happen to you as has happened to the animal. Okay, great. I can trust your promises. I know about you. But the second problem we face when thinking about trusting God is, how can I know about me? Abraham could have said, how do I know about me? I don't think I can pull my weight. I don't think I can stand up to your demands, God, says Abraham. Okay, I believe that you promised to be my God, but how on earth am I ever going to be your person? I let myself down, never mind letting you down, God. You'll give up on me. You'll quit on me. How do I know about me, my part in the bargain? I know about you, God, but how can I know about me? But again, see what happens. The beautiful picture of the passage God appears and passes through the pieces, but God passes through the pieces alone. God passes through the pieces alone. He doesn't turn and say to Abraham, great, my turn's gone, now it's your turn. On you go, Abraham. God is the superior party. He had every right to demand that Abraham himself go through, and God stands back and has nothing to do with it. But God says, you know what? I am going to go through, and I'm going to go through for the both of us by myself. I go through, and I go through alone. The superior party taking the place of the inferior party and going through the pieces. Now, isn't this a picture of the gospel? Isn't this a picture of the gospel message? Salvation is not a cooperative effort. It's not a partnership between us and God. The Lord, as I said, takes the place of the inferior party and passes between the pieces alone. God says, I will take upon myself the curse of the covenant for both of us. Abraham May I be cut up, broken, ripped to pieces if I don't keep my side of the bargain. But here's the thing. May I be cut up, broken, ripped to pieces if you don't keep your side of the bargain. I will will bless you. Even, and it did, even if it means he had to die. I will bless you, Abraham. And that transports us, doesn't it? To centuries later. And darkness came down again. We read in Mark 15, as Jesus is on the cross, at noon the darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God the Son took on human flesh. He was nailed to the cross. His body was cut up. His body was broken. His body was ripped to pieces. And on the cross, he took the curse of God the Father in the place of those who couldn't keep the covenant. He took the place of the covenant breakers. He took the place of the unrighteous, the ones who could never meet God's demands. Me. You. Us. And why? Why? What's the significance of the act of the cross? He did it to open the way of salvation. To open the way of right standing before God. Relationship, access to God again. The death of Jesus demonstrates that those who, as it says in verse 6, 
believe in the promises of God will inherit them. Will. We can be assured because of the work of Jesus that the promises of God will not fail, cannot fail, must not fail. We will enter his kingdom one day. We will fellowship with him forever if we believe in Christ. Not by a vision, but face to face. That's the promise of the gospel. And I pray, as we wrap things up, that all of us will be able to say, as Abraham did in verse 6, what was said of him will be said of us. That Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness.